prejudice, protests, and prosecutions. You may think I'm talking about today's stories, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, others. But each of those stories is better understood if we go back to Miami in the 1980s, when Miami was enduring some of the worst police-inspired riots in modern times. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and welcome to For the Defense. In today's episode, I will speak to famed criminal defense lawyer Roy Black about his representation of a police officer who was accused of killing a young black man back in Miami in 1982. But even that's not the beginning of the story. The story starts with Arthur McDuffie, a black Marine and insurance salesman. He was beaten to death by four police officers after a traffic stop in Miami. But the officers weren't tried in Miami. They were tried in Tampa because the judge presiding over the case, Judge Lenore Nesbitt, said the case was a time bomb. And she was right, it certainly was a powder keg. An all-white jury acquitted the police officers in Tampa and riots broke out all over Miami. At least 18 people were killed and there was $100 million in damage. Miami was an absolute mess. Tensions were at an all-time high. Enter Roy Black, who took on the case against the backdrop of all this tension and pressure. Roy had been a public defender fighting against police officers. So many were initially surprised when Roy took on the case. But you'll hear from Roy himself that a real criminal defense lawyer isn't afraid to take on the most difficult cases, isn't afraid to fight the toughest cases. He wasn't a deal maker. He was a real trial lawyer. I got to see Roy firsthand many years later in 2006 when we tried a six-week trial together in Savannah, Georgia. There were 10 defendants and the first week of trial was not going well. One of the co-defendants lawyers called a meeting. It was supposed to be for lawyers and clients only. He told everyone that the case was going down. We were all going to lose. Everyone needed to immediately approach the prosecutor to see if we could make a deal. Roy stood up, he walked out of the room. As he walked out, he said, I didn't come to Savannah to plead guilty. I came here to try a case and I have a cross-examination tomorrow. So please excuse me while I go get ready for trial in the morning. And that was that. There was no more talk about plea and we went on for six more weeks fighting. Back to 1982, Roy was a young lawyer. He had been given this case, the case that was making national headlines, the case that had the potential to bring down Miami in flames again. And Roy stood there fighting for Luis Alvarez in trial. Let's talk to Roy Black about this case for the defense. I'd like to know, Roy, how you got involved in that case. What was the first call you got? Well, David, the interesting thing, the case begins and ends in the same place with my law school class, which I have taught for 45 plus years. Ron Cohen, one of my students, uh, was counsel to the uh, police union at the time of the Alvarez case. So he called me, asked me if I would take on the case. And I said, of course I would. And that's how I got started. Then ironically, Two years ago, Alvarez's two sons were students of mine in the class. So it's like the Alpha and the Omega, all beginning with my law school class. And so they're studying to be lawyers? Yeah, but probably graduated by now. Fantastic. Fantastic. And 
So going back to the early 80s, I mean, Miami was a much different place than it is now. There was We were just coming off of the Arthur McDuffie riots. People were killed. Um, there must have been an awful lot of pressure on Alvarez and on you. I mean, were, were times all that different today than they were back then in the early 80s? Well, they certainly were in Miami because Miami was the only place having race riots at the time. And one thing that uh, I became, became, of course, accidentally, was an expert on Miami race riots because I've been involved in one way or another with everyone beginning from the rotten meat, re, excuse me, the rotten meat riot of 1970 all the way through the Lozano riots and, and what have you. So I know a lot about race relations in Miami when it comes to the riots. And let me tell you, Miami at the time was just a, a real tinderbox because anything could set off racial violence. And the problem was in Miami, nobody really wanted to attack the causes of it. We would work on the symptoms, but would never get into racism and poverty and public housing and education, all these kind of things that were necessary. And hopefully today, maybe we're coming to grips with. But at the time, we never did. I mean, and, and during that time, just coming off McDuffie, I mean, a lot of people probably don't remember what happened uh, with McDuffie in those riots. How, what was Miami like back then in the 80s? Well, the McDuffie riots, of course, was an enormous tragedy. It was just like the Rodney King riots much later in Los Angeles, where a lot of people were killed. I defended a, a young black man charged with killing four people during the riot. And, uh, you know, the town burned, a lot of destruction, huge, huge divide between the white community, Latin community, black community. It's, it's very hard for people today to understand how divisive Miami was in those days. So, so did you have any hesitation in taking the case? I mean, there's these, Miami's a tinderbox. You're coming off being a public defender where you attack police officers. And here you are now being asked to defend a police officer with Miami on fire. Well, I've always thought if you wanted to call yourself a criminal defense lawyer, you had to handle the tough cases. And this is obviously was going to be the toughest case at the time. And so, of course, it was a great challenge. So I, I definitely wanted to do it. And, you know, you ask about police officers and, and that, that's a really interesting question because when I became a public defender, I was right out, right out of the 1960s, peace movements, protests, Watergate, Nixon, all that kind of stuff. And so I was, you know, one of the, you know, became a public defender because it was a cause. It was, a, it was not just an occupation. But one thing I, I really learned during the time I was there was to have a lot of appreciation for these street cops, the guys who would put on the uniforms, put on the gun, go out there, you know, all night long in Liberty City and Overtown and put their lives on the line. And while we would butt heads in the courtroom, I had a lot of admiration for the work that they did. And at times it, it became... You know, you know, it's hard to describe. These guys would be up all night in their police cars, 
Then they would come in to testify in court. You could tell they were exhausted. And then I'd cross-examine them for a couple of hours and try to trip them up on everything and expose all the defects in their case and things like that. But, you know, it's like almost a Stockholm syndrome. You become, <laughs> uh, you, know, you become close to them because, you know, we were all on the firing line there. And, and I mean, when Alvarez first comes into your office for that first meeting, he must have known your reputation for, you know, your previous representation as a public defender and going uh, and fighting for people usually on the other side of police officers. I mean, that first meeting, it's so hard for criminal defense lawyers to gain the trust of the client. Was that a difficult thing at the beginning or what did you guys hit it off right from the start? Well, yeah, no, I liked him from the start, but it took a while because you can imagine that they're paranoid about criminal defense lawyers. Right. They're taught their whole career, never talk to them, don't do anything that's gonna cause a problem. They're out to make you look like a liar. They're attacking your case. So needless to say, they, you know, it, it, it took a while to build confidence. I bet, I bet. And, and, and at the time, Janet Reno was the state attorney. She, she later becomes the attorney general. And, and, you know, hearing stories um, from criminal defense lawyers, she was pretty well respected as a state attorney at the time. But in, in your book, you, you go after her quite a bit. Um, I, I, what, was, what was your feeling about, about Reno at the time and, and, and later even? Well, I always liked Janet. She, she was really a very nice woman. And we dealt with her. Uh, I dealt with her a lot when I was a public defender because they tried to start this master calendar system. And she was in charge of it for the state attorney, or she was an assistant state attorney or a chief assistant, one of those titles. And I was uh, head of that section for the public defender's office. So I dealt with her a lot. So she was a, a really nice woman, very smart, but she was not a trial lawyer. I right. think she tried one case and it was dismissed after the first witness. She was a politician. Uh, yeah, she did not understand the courtroom. And that's how, and she did not understand the police agencies. That's how she got in trouble with Waco. You know, a couple of weeks after she's appointed attorney general, Waco blows up and she believes everything told to her by the FBI and the ATF. And that led to the enormous disaster. And I told her the same thing with the cops in Miami. You just can't run out and indict cops because it's, it, it, it's a lot more difficult than you think. But there must have been so much pressure on her at the time coming off of McDuffie and and with what was going on um, right at the time, there must have been an enormous, I mean, to say the least, political pressure on her. Well, of course. And and, and, and as you know, the I know you've read part of this, the Miami Herald was behind a lot of it. They are pushing very hard to prosecute cops, going after cops. It's like Minneapolis today. You know, it's the same kind of thing. There's that public pressure. You've got uh, uh, community leaders, particularly in the black community, demanding action. And, you know, the easiest thing is to indict the cop rather than change our institutions. So so but but at the time, I guess, because of the Herald coverage, because of the pressure, because of McDuffie, you, you file a motion to change venue pre-trial. Um, you, you did a poll. I think the poll I'm going to read said 60% of county residences agreed with the statement police officers' use of deadly force has been on the increase and cannot be justified. And 58% agreed that Miami is a potential powder keg and the threat of violence is imminent. I mean, 
you, there must have been no way to get a fair trial uh, in Miami at the time. At least that's what you guys must have been thinking. Yeah, of course. We, we were very, very pessimistic about that. But as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we had just come off the McDuffie riots where I think 17 people were killed or 15 people. I forgot how many. And it was an enormous amount of property damage. And the judges thought that was because they changed venue from Miami to Tampa. So there was no way in the world they were ever going to change Alvarez's case out of Miami because they were afraid of another McDuffie riot if they did it. So we knew it was an uphill battle. We fought the battle. We had hearings, all that kind of stuff. But at the end, the court denied it. And, you know, you got to go ahead with the trial. And the judge was was this young man, uh, Gersten. What was his story? He, I mean, he was like a, a baby judge. Yeah, he, he was very young, but very smart, was really a good judge. He went on to have a great career, became chief judge of the Third District Court of Appeal, our main appellate court here. And really, uh, I disagreed with, you know, a number of his rulings, like the change of venue, and other, there was other rulings that we could debate and what have you. But the guy was really fair, even-handed, very smart. I couldn't have asked for a better judge. So you're getting ready for trial. You like the judge, but you're getting threats from every which direction. Um, how, how are you feeling with, with getting the threats at the office, at home, and so on, from even groups like the Yahwehs who later get prosecuted? Well, the, the Yahweh's is an interesting story because uh, the judge called us into chambers one day and said, look, I've been giving the, given these intelligence reports that I want to uh, tell you about that the Yahweh's want to disrupt the trial and all this. And they decided that killing Alvarez was not a good idea because he'd become a martyr then. So they said, let's just kill his lawyer. That would be much better. <laughs> I sort of disagreed with that thinking, but nevertheless, uh, that was it. And at the time, to be honest with you, I, I didn't take it that seriously. It wasn't until, as you just mentioned, they were indicted years later for killing like 15 people. And it turns out to be initiated into their cult, you had to kill at least one white person. So if I had known that at the time, I'm sure I would have been a little more nervous. Even the Yahweh's couldn't stop Roy from getting this case to trial. And in the next segment, you're going to hear about the start of the Alvarez trial, Roy's strategy, what he was looking for with jurors. And we'll get to that next. In the next segment of For the Defense, I'm going to speak with Roy Black about what it takes to win a trial. And Roy is really known for his work ethic and he's been the hardest working defense lawyer for all of these years. I can tell you from working with him personally and trying a case with him in Savannah for six weeks, he was the hardest working lawyer during that trial. There was a whole hotel of lawyers and we would work around the clock, but even after we would all leave the war room to get a few hours of sleep, Roy was the last one there at night and the first one there in the morning. And the guy is just known for working hard. And in a trial, you really are working 24-7. There's no breaks. There's no time off. And the key is obviously winning. And one of the big differences between prosecutors and defense lawyers is supposed to be that defense lawyers should do everything in their power within the ethical 
rules to win a case, while prosecutors aren't there to win but to do justice. Unfortunately, prosecutors see their role as winning as well, and so there ends up being this tension of what is a prosecutor supposed to do? Is he supposed to try to win the case or is he supposed to try to do justice? There is no tension for the defense lawyer. And as you'll hear in the next segment, Roy was going to do whatever it took to win the case. And that includes trying to get a jury that he believes would be the most likely to acquit his client, even if the jury is not diverse. And Roy took a lot of criticism for that, but his job is to win a case, not to try to soothe racial tensions, as you'll hear. And it reminds me of a trial that I had here in Miami in federal court representing a number of Cuban police officers. And in walks to the courthouse, Gloria Estefan, who was on our veneer. And the defense really, really wanted Estefan to be on the jury. We believed she would be sympathetic to the police officers. And the prosecutors really wanted to strike her for that same reason. So when the press got word that Gloria Estefan was in the federal courthouse, they all came running over. Um, Estefan was excused by the prosecutors, but on her way out, she signed autographs for the marshals, the judge, the other jurors, and even us defense lawyers. Roy didn't have Gloria Estefan on his jury, but you'll hear who he went after and his strategy in doing so next. So we're on the eve of trial. Um, Voidir's about to start. What is your ideal juror? What are you looking for for jurors in this case? Well, when you asked me about this, I, I looked to see if we had any files left on it. And of course, I don't, because these days it's so expensive to have office space. You get rid of old files. But I imagine our perfect juror would have been an older Latin conservative male or female because, you know, this is a race riot. So right. the issue of race, of course, is in everybody's mind. Well, my client was uh, of Cuban descent. Of course, as you know, 50, 60 percent of Miami is Cuban. So that's obviously the demographic that I was shooting for. And so, you know, you're shooting for that demographic. Of course, the prosecutor, Abe Lazer's shooting for a much different demographic. Um, you end up with what kind of jury? Well, we had, you know, of course, it became controversial because it was an all-white jury. All the uh, African-American jurors were excused for either uh, for cause, for having an opinion about it, or I can't remember if we had used peremptory challenges. I certainly wouldn't be surprised if we did. But you have to remember that this is not your normal kind of case. Normally, race is not a really an issue in jury selection because it, the demographics don't mean much. It's people's life experiences and what have you that you want to get into. But you can't overlook the fact that there's riots about this and there was a threat of rioting if Alvarez would be acquitted. How could you really expect a black businessman from Overtown or Liberty City to sit on a jury and find this guy not guilty. His business would be target number one when they started burning buildings in Miami. So it was just too much pressure, I thought, on any black jurors. And, you know, I got a lot of criticism for that. But 
look, I'm not here trying to ease racial tensions in Miami. I'm trying a case and I'm looking for the jurors that I think are going to help me do that. And for better or worse, that's the way it worked out. No. And, and, and so it takes a long time to get a jury. I think you said eight days uh, to get a jury. And then you finally have the jury. You're about to start the trial. And, and one of the jurors comes in and says, I can't do this because of the pressure. Um, now, Laser moves to disqualify the whole panel and start over, I'm sure, because he looks out at the jury and sees six people that look a lot more like your client than the victim. Um, and so you, you want just that one juror excluded and you prepare a motion that night uh, at, for the appellate court. Tell, tell us what happened there. Well, needless to say, th this was a critical part of the case. And we thought that we had the best jury that we could possibly pick under the circumstances. It looks like it's all coming apart. So after court that day, I go back, I draft up a petition for writ of prohibition to file in the third district. And of course, there's no ruling yet. So there's no basis for a petition. So I get a, someone, I can't remember, a courier or someone in the office. I said, you go out there to the clerk's office. As soon as it's open, you go in and sit down in the chair and you wait till you hear from us. And then you file these papers. And of course, it had a, uh, a motion with it for an immediate hearing because we wanted to stop the judge from letting the jurors leave the courthouse. We were going to demand they stay there, have it heard by the third district, and of course, that way, try to prevent it from uh, falling apart. But ironically, the courier made a mistake and went in and filed the, the pleadings right away early in the morning. And, and when the judge came out that morning, said, well, what's this about a, an appeal? And, you know, he goes, this whole thing, you filed this appeal and, and all of that. But the interesting part was he ended up ruling in our favor. And I think, ironically, it was because we had already appealed his ruling that hadn't yet happened. And he knew that we were going to take this as long and as hard as possible. And he ended up ruling in our favor, which I think was the correct ruling anyway. Amazing. Amazing. And so... You know, you finally have your jury. The judge rules with you guys. To back up a second, I mean, how did you have Alvarez? Like, what did you tell him to wear to court and how what his appearance should be? Um, how important are those kinds of issues when when coming to a trial? Uh, I think they're very important. Most cops, particularly street cops, dress like thugs. You know, you, we, you go to go to traffic court and see them with the boots and the belts and guns and all this kind of stuff. They love all those accoutrements and the same thing in, in their regular life. So I told Alvarez, you've got to dress like a professional. And that's when I told him the Edward Ben and Williams, uh, Frank Costello uh, argument. I said, you know, Williams, who was a great criminal lawyer of the 50s and 60s representing Frank Costello, who's head, the overall head of the mob in the United States, and they're going to go to court. And Williams is in his hotel room and he hears a knock and he opens the door and there's Costello in like, you know, a $500 shark skin suit, which today would be $10,000. And Williams says, you can't wear that to court. You got to go out and buy a $50 suit and come back. And about five minutes later, there's a knock on the door and it's Costello again. It said, I'd rather be convicted. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, Alvarez didn't feel that way. 
Great. He, you know, he bought suits, looked like a real professional, shaved his mustache off, short, you know, very conservative looking. Because that's the image we had to uh, give to the jury, that this is not some wild thug on the street running around, beating up people, shooting them and what have you. He's a professional doing a job, and he's going to come in here and explain it to you, and you're going to understand that he had no choice but to do and act like the way he did. Well, it sounds like you're about to give opening, which is what I want to talk about next. So opening statement, Blazer gets up. Now, now, so everybody knows, A. Blazer at the time was a huge figure at the state attorney's office, the, their best trial lawyer, right? Oh, no, A. Blazer uh, for, for decades was their best lawyer, very smart. And beyond that, he's your worst, worst enemy because he's so well prepared. He would, you know, be totally uh, prepared on every single fact. And that's why it was tough dealing with him because the only chance a criminal defense lawyer has in a lot of these cases is to outwork the prosecutor. You've got to outwork them, you know, three times as much. That was impossible with Laser because he would be on it 20 hours a day. So we knew we were up against the best and it was very tough. One other thing I wanted to mention is that Ed Cowart was his uh, co-prosecutor, who was a wonderful guy, by the way. But ironically, we were trying the case in the same courtroom where Ed Cowart had been the judge sentencing <laughs> Ted Bundy to death a couple of years before the trial. So, I mean, it was the, the, just really a part of Miami history. So, so, you know, tip, I've seen you try cases and you actually like to use graphics and technology in the courtroom, which is important. Um, and you come into opening statement and Abe Laser is actually using um, high tech graphics uh, and, and the like. And you decide to use a chalkboard in opening. Why, why the difference and why um, um, did you not use equal type of graphics and such in that trial? Well, there's an easy answer to that. We couldn't afford it. But putting that aside, remember, this is 1984. We don't have the same graphics like we have today. We don't have screens and we don't have all the uh, fun things you can do. The best you could come is with some big boards or things like that. But there's nothing better than a blackboard, though. I mean, we all went to school, at least when I went to school, the teachers all use blackboards. Today, of course, they have smart boards and all those kind of things. But a blackboard back then was your ultimate teaching method, and it worked very well. Even today, I believe in using multimedia. You can use uh, boards. You can use video, sound. You have all kinds of stuff, but you can still use the blackboard because the more ways that you can communicate to the jury, the better. And so I like mixing them up. Because if you do one thing, the jurors get bored of it soon. You want to keep moving around and doing different ways of communicating. So one of the things that you had to communicate in opening, and I think many people would be surprised by this, is you went after Neville Johnson. I mean, you called him uh, Mr. Snake in opening. You talked about his, his life. Um, were you at all surprised that the judge let you do that? Um, and, and was that, tell me about that a little bit. Well, it's interesting you bring up Mr. Snake. Every defendant, no matter 
how ugly your nickname is, the, the, the government's going to put it in their indictment, you know, a.k.a. the caveman or Mr. Murder or whatever it may be. They love that kind of stuff. So I wanted to turn that around and use Mr. Snake. I mean, it, that was the perfect metaphor for our case, because that's exactly what we're going to say he did in that uh, arcade. You know, he tried to twist around, try to uh, deceptively get his gun up so he could shoot the cop. And so Mr. Snake fit in perfectly as the metaphor for our case. And, and I think it was legitimate to use it. Uh, fortunately, the judge never, I don't, I don't think Laser objected to it. I don't think the judge ever ruled on it, to my recollection. But I think it really worked well for us. Now, you know, the first witness that Laser called was the homicide detective, John Burmaster. Um, and, and looking back at the trial, a lot of people said that, that, that your cross of Burmaster was where the case was won. Um, you crossed him for over three days, which is a really long cross. W was that your strategy going in? And, and how, did you, how did you dismantle Burmaster? Well, it was really not my strategy going in, but we had to be flexible because of a change in circumstances. With Burmaster, you know, we were up against a really formidable witness because he's a, I, I remember him well. He was one of these kind of guys who was well-dressed, good-looking guy, the all-American boy. He had every medal you can think of. I mean, this guy was a hero, saved people, had done a lot of cases. I know he went on in his career, and I think he became assistant chief in Miami and then went off to become a chief of police somewhere else. I don't remember all the, the details of that, but this guy was really good. And unless we put some doubt into his testimony, we were in, in serious trouble. And, and my, part of my strategy was to, to get the jury to see what it was like in that arcade at the time he went in there and started questioning Alvarez because he claimed he took this five or 10 minute statement from Alvarez, which was the keystone to the state's case. We had to put some doubt into that. Yet at the time this is going on, there's a riot outside. People right. are trying to storm the arcade. They're throwing rocks, bottles, Molotov cocktails. They just kept calling in more and more police units until every police unit in the city was called to the location. They finally had to abandon the arcade. And I think Burmaster, as I recall, was hiding in the back because he was the last person to leave. And he, he was sort of like the Alamo. He couldn't even get out of the place. Like hiding in the and closet so, or something, right? Yeah, he, he was right. There was something like that. It was really uh, amazing tension. So I had all this video to show it. And it was, if, if you've seen the last riots that went on, you know, these, the video is, is just amazing to watch. It gets right into the middle of it. So we had these clips that we were going to play, laser objected, and the judge excluded them, saying that they were too prejudicial. They were too convincing. <laughs> they would influence the jury too much. You know how that is. And so we excluded it. And, you know, I'm standing there thinking, oh, my God, now where do I go? And at night, we went back to the um, tapes. You know, you got these... Uh, uh, they tape all the communications of the police department and we had them. So we decided to get all these tapes and play the tapes instead of the video, because I think then we could get it. And that's when we came across the real gem about Burmaster that we didn't know about before. 
So, so just to take a step back for a second, I mean, here's Burmaster. He testifies on direct. His testimony on direct was very well scripted and quite different than what you had expected. I mean, he talks about the hands of Johnson being up in the air and so on. And it was, it was quite devastating testimony. And so you go back, you try to play these videos, the judge won't let you play them. And you're listening to the audio tapes. Um, and, and Burmaster had taken a statement from your client, Alvarez, and you wanted to show that the statement was, was not just in an office where you could write down the statement under nice uh, conditions. And so what do you find on these audio tapes? All right, well, it was, it was really interesting. You're right, because the irony of the case is Laser's theory of the case was that it was an accidental shooting. Our theory of the case, our defense, that it was deliberate, which is, which is really Reverse. unusual, the opposite of what you normally would expect. So uh, what happened is this statement where his arms are up and turning around, he's trying to show that... Uh, Alvarez made a mistake and he uses the word jerked and flinched and all this kind of stuff to show it was accidental. We were trying to show that Alvarez thought he was dead and that's why he shot. And just to step back a second, I remember the one thing that Alvarez told me right from the beginning, and I'll never forget this. He said, when the guy turned, I thought I was dead. I mean, he said, just like that, he said, I'm dead. He told me that from the first day and he testified to it, and I'll tell you, it was chilling to hear that. The guy said, I'm dead, I thought it was over, right. and what have you, and that's why I shot him. But what we found is, on these police communication tapes, the operator would state the time periodically, so the cops would know what time it was and write it in their report. Burmaster put down that he started the Alvarez interview at 6.35 p.m., which is 1835 in police lingo, you know, military time. They love that kind of stuff. Right. And so we're going through the tapes and, and the, uh, we're, we, we're, we got Burmaster's tape and he's going through everything that's happened. And then it gets to 1835. And I said, well, now you're ready to take the statement, right? And then through for the next five minutes, he's on the, we need more cars. They're, they're storming the place. We got to do this. They're, they're shooting. There's Molotov cocktails. You know, this is dangerous. All this kind of stuff of him virtually yelling on the tape. At the same time, he's now telling us he's taking this statement from Alvarez. So I think we were able to show that the accuracy at the very least was greatly diminished. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. And and the state's case goes on for a long time, 27 days or something like this. One of their witnesses was this gun expert, Hill. Um, and I guess he was on the stand and, and in the heat of the moment, you decide you want to do an experiment with Hill. Uh, what, what happens with him? <laughs> I, I was really fortunate this time because Hill is on the stand and he's going through about how Alvarez should have handled the situation. And of course, this is a guy, former special forces. He spent his whole life on the SWAT team. You know, you know what those kind of guys are like. So, of course, then I said, well, come on, let, let's demonstrate this. Um, I, I can see it in my mind right now as if it was yesterday. He carefully stands up and he had these aviator style glasses on. He takes them off and puts them down on the witness stand 
and stands up and gets ready. And right away, I know this guy is going to take me apart. It's going to be a joke. And so then I, I said, oh, no, 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 this is too serious or something like that. And I was able to do an almost dignified retreat because I'll never forget him taking off those glasses. And I realized this guy is really a professional. He's done this all his life. And here I am. I'm going to do a demonstration. And, and as, I, I, as we learn later with Christopher Darden, you don't do demonstrations with a hostile witness in the courtroom. It's never going to work out. They're not there to help you. They're, they're there to make you look foolish. And this guy would have taken me apart. It's worse than asking the open-ended question, right? Because he gets to now demonstrate for the jury uh, in front of everybody. And we learn much later in the OJ case with Darden, uh, with the gloves, what happens. Right, because as you know, David, when it's cross-examination, it's much more enhanced, much more believable. It's not scripted out. The truth could come out during cross-examination. And me telling him to do this and the two of us doing it together would have been really, really damaging to us, just like the gloves with OJ. So we, I was very fortunate to escape that. Roy certainly escaped that huge pitfall. The prosecutor won't be so lucky in the next segment of For the Defense. Roy started his career as a public defender and did hundreds, if not thousands, of cross-examinations where he honed his skills, got the experience he needed to see how things really worked in a courtroom. So he was able to sniff out how bad that demonstration was going to go as soon as that officer took off his glasses and Roy backed out and avoided a huge disaster. The same isn't true for prosecutors. Prosecutors haven't done lots of cross-examinations. Most of the time they're asking direct questions. What happened next? Um, the, the joke in criminal defense circles is that prosecutors are taught in prosecutor school how to ask what happened next. And if they get to advanced training, they're taught how to ask what, if anything, happened next. While defense lawyers, on the other hand, have to cross lots and lots of different types of witnesses. And so you see prosecutors, when they're given the opportunity to cross-examine, make huge mistakes. The O.J. Simpson trial is obviously the most famous example where Christopher Darden is trying to cross-examine uh, OJ during this demonstration and OJ takes the opportunity to just demolish the prosecution's case. And OJ wasn't even testifying at the time. It was just a demonstration in front of the jury with the glove. And we got the famous, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit from Johnny Cochran. In this case, in the Alvarez case, Alvarez himself testifies. And as you'll hear in the next segment, the prosecutor is given the opportunity to cross-examine him and do a demonstration. The prosecutor, Abe Lazor, is no rookie. He has been around the block. He's probably at the time the best prosecutor that the state attorney's office had to offer. And yet he fell into the trap of doing this demonstration and it is one of the most amazing courtroom moments that I have ever read about um, and you'll hear about it in the next segment of For the Defense. So so 27 days later, the state finally rests. Um, 
what's your feeling at the time when the state rests? Do you feel that you guys are ahead, behind? What's the feeling in, in the room? Well, we thought that we had really uh, done well, that there was reasonable doubt and what have you. But you never know with these kind of cases because of right. these are just not your normal cases. And you don't know how the jurors necessarily are taking it because there were good days, there were bad days and all of that. I thought that we were ahead, but it, it's hard just to rely upon that. And, uh, you know, so I still thought we had to go ahead with the case and we put on a very extensive defense case. So that's where I want to get to next. So we're done with the state. We're now turning to the defense case. You feel good, but you still feel like you have to put on a case. And, and I want to ask you before we get there, I mean, you're a young lawyer at the time. How, you, you weren't paid a lot of money on this case. A 27-day trial crushes your practice. How are you able to survive financially? How is the firm doing? How, how are you doing uh, 27 days into trial at this point? Well, of course, we weren't paid anything to, to uh, take the case. We were able to raise some money for costs by people making donations. Uh, so needless to say, things were very difficult. And we borrowed money from the bank and kept things afloat. But I had a very small office. And, you know, the overhead wasn't great like today. So we were able to uh, uh, keep afloat. But I had really no interest in that at the time. You know, when you're in the middle of a trial, there's only one thing in your mind, and that's that case, 24-7. There was no time for anything except eating and sleeping a few hours every night. And so, I mean, that's the people don't understand about trial. You know, unlike doctors who go in and do a surgery and then they go home that night, uh, a, a trial or an operation for a criminal defense lawyer can last months um, and, and you don't sleep. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't stop. When you're in the shower, you're thinking about it. There's nothing you can do because everything uh, is in your hands. You're the person who's defending somebody. You can't take a day off. Right. And so the most important decision comes, which is, do you call Officer Alvarez to the stand? And can you tell us a little about how you made the decision in that case and how you typically make that decision? Uh, it's an easy answer uh, to that question. Alvarez said, I'm testifying, period, end of story. So I could go into all the thought processes we normally do, but it made no difference because Alvarez was, said, look, it's my life on the line. I'm not going to get convicted and go to prison and say I should have testified. Whatever happens, I want to testify. I'm going to get up and tell people what happened. It's my life, my reputation. Uh, I'm going to do it. I mean, so dramatic, but in a lot of cases, when you're ahead in a criminal defense case, the, the, the common thought is you don't call your client, especially when you're ahead. You only call your client when you're behind, which is in most cases. In this case, you kind of thought you were ahead, but he said he's going forward. Did your, did your co-counsel tell him that's crazy or you're, you're, you're making a mistake? Uh, we, 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 we did talk to him and tell him, told him exactly what you said is that you're taking a huge risk. All you got to do is make one mistake, one bad answer, and you could lose the case. And we've all seen that happen. You get up on the stand, you think you can handle it, but the state and the federal government have resources far beyond anything we have. They've got all the databases, forensic evidence. They have untold thousands of police officers, detectives. They dig up stuff on you that we could never uh, do. So, 
you take a risk. And he says, look, I'm doing it. I don't care what you guys say. I'm getting up and testifying. And you only put him on for like 90 minutes, very short. Um, what was the thinking there? Well, all we had to do was have him describe what happened in that arcade. It took seconds. And so I wanted to give him the opportunity to say exactly what happened. And that's what he did. He walked the jury through driving up to the arcade, what happened in the arcade, why he shot the gun. He thought that he was going to be killed. And uh, that was it. You don't need more than that. And so then Laser gets the cross. You guys must have been on the edge of your seat. And, and not only does Laser cross, but he calls Alvarez down off the stand to do the demonstration that we just talked about how dangerous it is. I mean, this to me, when I, when I read about this again, my jaw was on the floor uh, uh, with, the, with, the, with that moment. Yeah, it, it, was, it was an unbelievable moment, moment for a number of reasons. Alvarez had his jacket on, and it was like uh, Neville Johnson had a sweater on over the gun. And what uh, Laser did is he grabbed the gun through the jacket that Alvarez was wearing and saying, see, I've got your, I've got the gun. There's no reason to think that he could shoot you. And then all Alvarez did was turn and push against him and Laser ended up with the jacket in his hand and the gun was in Alvarez's hand and in half a second, he shot him. He, and remember Alvarez said, you've got the coat and I've got the gun and you're dead. It's amazing. I mean, I, I'm just trying to think of the, of that moment in court. So, so, you know, Laser tells Alvarez that he's going to be playing Johnson, which is just insane to start with. And then Laser plays Alvarez and tries to hold the gun, the actual gun that was used in the shooting itself. Yes, they had the well, they had Johnson's gun. They Johnson's it, gun. Uh, yes. And, and actually demonstrated the entire thing. And one of the interesting parts that I that was just amazing is when Alvarez is, is discussing this, he looks over at the, you know, he's telling him where everybody is and they ask him, well, where was your partner? They said he was standing right where Mrs. Hoodwin is sitting right there. And of course, Mrs. Hoodwin loved that idea. And uh, that, Mrs. You know, Hoodwin was a juror. One of the jurors, you know, so he's like, he, he brought the jury right into what he was doing. And, and it was so uh, convincing the way that he did it. And, and I think that that was one of the reasons we won the case. The, the guy was an excellent, excellent witness. Had you planned that with Alvarez or did he just do that on the spur of the moment, referencing the juror like that? No, it was. Listen, I'd like to take credit for that. But no, I, I had no ideas. He had memorized the names of every juror. And, you know, Alvarez is very smart and he knew exactly what was going on in that courtroom. And he knew everybody who was, you know, judging him. And that's that's it just came naturally. So he brings in the juror, which is an amazing moment. And then he's got the gun to Laser's head in front of the jury. Um, I mean, the prosecutor who's trying to put this man away in prison um, is standing there with the, with the defendant having the gun to his head. I, I still can't picture it. Yeah, but the, you, you cannot imagine the tension in the courtroom. Because here's Alvarez with the gun stuck in the prosecutor's ear and he was holding on to him like this. 
and Alvarez wouldn't let go. And the two of them are like in this death grip right in front of the jury. The judge finally had to say, okay, okay, we got to stop. We got to have a recess. We got to do whatever and, you know, take everybody uh, apart. And because it was, it was just an amazing moment. So I, I went back and I was reading uh, the Herald articles at the time, and there was daily coverage um, from the Miami Herald about the case. And most of it was, you wouldn't know that you guys were scoring any points at all. It was, it was very, very pro-prosecution every day. And I looked for an article about this event and I, I couldn't find one. So I guess I, I wanted to know, like, today's obviously very different. There's so much social media, Twitter, but at the time people relied on the Miami Herald, the newspaper for their news. I mean, you, it must have been so disheartening every morning to wake up and read uh, the newspaper. Yeah, no, it was. And, and, and we thought that it was very one-sided. And, you know, local television would cover it as well. But, you know, local television would have a very light summary of what was going on. They just wanted some video because they, they were allowed to have cameras in the courtroom. So they just wanted some dramatic video to show. And the Herald was really covering it in detail. And, and we thought it was very unfair, but look, there's nothing you can do about it. Was the jury sequestered in the case? Yes, they were sequestered the whole time. I mean, that's also very rare. Is that something that you wanted or, or was that just a, a, the judge decided to do it that way? Interesting question. I'm sure we must have asked for it because I think we needed that in order to, or we had to ask for it in order to preserve our motion for change of venue. You know, you got to keep asking all these things. Otherwise, you'll waive the legal issue. And uh, I'm sure that we thought that sequestration was a good idea because we didn't want them being uh, subjected to threats and what have you. And, you know, there was a lot of threats going on. And there was one part where we uh, there was a bomb threat that came in and everybody went out of the courthouse. And right behind the courthouse is the Dade County Jail. And they were all chanting, kill Alvarez oh while the jury was out there. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, problems with that. And you can imagine people are, are don't like to be threatened. And, and it's an ugly thing to go through. So you call Alvarez, you have these dramatic moments. Um, the state calls a few witnesses on rebuttal, and now it's time for closing. What, what was the strategy for closing now that the, the jury's been out for so long, 30-something uh, days sequestered or whatever it was? What was your strategy going into closing? Well, we had to really emphasize that the police are there to protect citizens. And we had to get the message across to the people on the jury, listen, police officers are there protecting you. And, and I was thinking about this right before uh, we started this morning. And I was thinking that the best speech would have been Jack Nicholson and a few good men. You know, you want me up on that wall, uh, walking every night when you're sleeping in your bedrooms and all of that. You don't quite go as far as Nicholson, but that's what you want to get across, that these guys are out there all night long wearing uniforms and guns and they've got their big targets and you've got to back them up. That was the whole thing. And I said, look, they need backup. They don't need backup just when they're in the middle of a shooting. They need backup in this courtroom. And you have to support the police officers who are out there protecting your lives. It looked like Laser actually went after you personally a little bit for going after Johnson. 
Um, and when you're sitting there in, in closing and hearing the prosecutor go after you personally, I mean, you must have had smoke coming out of your ears. Yeah, but I, that, that's happened quite often. I've been there and re, usually, as we know, that the, the, the government and the state get to do the opening argument and the rebuttal in the closing argument. So after you sit down, they get to get up and rebuttal and call you every name in the book, although in a very nice, polite way. And so, you know, we're very used to that. And listen, I don't, he could say whatever he wants about me. I didn't really care about that. I was only caring what he said about Alvarez. And, and it's funny, you mentioned the giving the opening and the rebuttal. Florida had this weird rule back then that if you didn't put on a case, the defense could actually give the opening part of the closing and, and the rebuttal, which was, you know, giving the defense one slight advantage if you didn't put on a case. Of course, you did put on a case. Was, did that go into the thinking at all back then about whether the defense should put on a case? No, not, not to me, because I had never really had any great uh, faith in that rule. I would never give up one witness to have an extra argument. I, any kind of evidence that I could come up with, I wanted it because the jury, I don't think jurors like it when you don't put on a defense. Now, I've won cases without putting on a defense, but the jury wants to hear from you, no matter how much they believe in the presumption of innocence and all that. If, if you don't do anything at all, I, I think it, it, it doesn't work well. And, and did you talk about that a lot in your closing about how Alvarez actually testified in that moment? And that must have been the central part of the closing argument. Yeah, of course, we went all through that again, but it, it was really um, not that persuasive, I don't think, because Alvarez was far more persuasive himself in doing it. So he was more persuasive than I was in what happened in that arcade. While I summed it all up and all of that, I can't say it was particularly dramatic because I couldn't get anywhere close to the drama of the confrontation between Laser and Alvarez. We'll have the drama of the verdict in the next segment of For the Defense. There is nothing harder for a criminal defense lawyer than waiting for a verdict. And as you're waiting, there's always debates. Was the jury looking at you? Were they not looking at you? Is a quick verdict good? Is a long verdict good? Um, what, what's the best way to get to not guilty? And you'll hear a million different theories from the lawyers and the client and the family about what's good and what's bad. And the truth is nobody really knows. In that trial that I had with Roy in Savannah, Georgia, that six week long trial, my daughter was born on Friday in Miami and then trial started on Monday in Savannah, went for six weeks. We even had trial on Saturday, so I couldn't get home to see my brand new baby girl. And so the jury goes out six weeks later and I'm thinking I'm going to get to go home soon. And the judge said we have to stay at the courthouse while the jury deliberated. So the jury deliberated one day, two days. We're still waiting. Nine days later, the jury still had not come back with a verdict. My wife called me. She said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to get on the plane uh, with the baby and we'll come see you. And of course, she gets on the plane. And the minute she does that, nine days into deliberations, we hear there's a verdict. Um, we try frantically to call my wife and say, don't get on the plane. I'll be coming home tomorrow. But she had already taken off when she landed. There were uh, her phone had blown up that the verdict had come in. Um, and when she got there with my daughter, we were able to celebrate the not guilty verdict. So that nine day 
deliberations ended up going very well in Savannah. Um, let's hear what happens to this deliberations, how long it takes, and what happens in the next segment. And so the jury goes out. Um, what do you guys, I mean, to me, when a jury goes out, that's the hardest part of any trial, just waiting. W- where did you guys go? How, what did you do while the jury was out? How long were they out? <laughs> well, the, the part that I, I remember so well, we went back to my office and we had, you know, somewhere, I don't know, five or six o'clock, seven o'clock, I don't remember what time. And we ordered dinner. And as the dinner arrived, we got the call from the court, they have a verdict. And so Alvarez, I'll never forget, is sitting in there eating. And I said, come on, we got to go. He said, no, no, I have to finish eating. And I said, what are you talking about? Of course, I couldn't eat a thing because, you know, I'm like, you know, a a ball of nerves. Not him, he's sitting there eating. He said, look, it's not going to make any difference in the verdict whether I finish my dinner or not. I'm finishing eating before we go. So then we go to the the courtroom, and of course it, it was the courthouse was deserted except for the press. There were hundreds of reporters and cameras, and the verdict came back. When we got in, it was around eleven o'clock or eleven fifteen. So it went live on the uh, local news, and of course that gave everybody in the community a heads up when to start rioting. And as soon as uh, the verdict came in, you could hear you know, outside the courthouse and all over the city, all kinds of noises and screaming and yelling and guns going off and all that type of thing. So the verdict comes back relatively quickly after such a long trial within a couple of hours, the very same night. Um, I was surprised when I saw that the judge was going to let the jury deliberate till midnight that night. Is that is that a common thing? I mean, that sounds crazy. Well, back then it was. Back in the, the Metro Justice uh, building times, they would allow jurors to deliberate midnight, 1 a.m. I had many cases where it went that late. I, it, they did it as a psychological thing to get the jurors to come back with a verdict. Otherwise, you're going to be in limbo for the rest of your life. And of course, that's another reason why I hate Friday afternoons. You know, there's always verdicts Friday afternoons because the jurors don't want to come back on Monday. So, Jury psychology is keep them there until they have a verdict, which I think is very unfair because it, it really rushes deliberations. Uh, but in this case, it worked to our favor because usually most people don't realize this. A quick verdict is always usually good for the defendant. A, a verdict that takes three or four days is usually much better for the prosecution. And so you get the not guilty. I mean, unbelievable. And you start to hear all the stuff going on outside the courtroom. How was the aftermath? Um, was it were there were there extensive riots and so on like McDuffie or was it different? How was it in Miami? Well, there was some rioting, but it was at a much lower scale, obviously, than McDuffie, even lower scale than the original Alvarez riot. So there was all kinds of disturbances that night. I can't remember if anybody was killed or, you know, I'm sure there was some property damage. But I don't think it was really, uh, you know, totally out of control. People were demonstrating, protesting and what have you. And there was some looting and I'm sure arson and what have you. Uh, The part that I remember is we were surrounded by the SWAT team. They had dog sniffing or bomb sniffing dogs at our car. When we got back to the office, 
Uh, we were, you know, they had snipers on the roof. They had these guys and all this kind of armor and what have you. That made me more nervous than anything else. And these guys, they all had, you know, AR-15s or M4s, whatever they were at the time. And it, it was a real show of force. Now, Alvarez um, said afterwards that the police officers were doing some clicking noises on their on their radios. What was that all about? Well, it's interesting because we went in police cars back to the office and we kept hearing all that clicking sound over their radios. And I had no idea what that was. And he said, what happened is they can't get on the radio and say something like, you know, fantastic or all that, because it's all being taped and they're all worried about being disciplined if they dare say anything. So they could click their microphones. And that was like, you know, clapping. My goodness. And so... You know, people think that after the, a trial like this, you might celebrate for a week, take some time off, uh, uh, do it, take a vacation. Did you get to do that after this case? Uh, God, this is awful because I had a case set in Ham, a federal drug case set for trial in Hammond, Indiana, the Northern District of Indiana. Horrible place, mind you. Never go there. And the judge kept, you know, didn't want to delay the trial. And Alvarez's case was taking much longer than was originally thought. And twice he held me in contempt for not showing up for the trial. We had to take a writ both times to the Seventh Circuit to overturn it. And then the verdict came in Thursday night at 11, you know, 11 o'clock. Monday morning at 9 o'clock, I'm in Hammond, Indiana, picking a jury in March where it's horrible, slush, cold, rain, snow. And I like to tell people the only stores in the whole town were all boarded up with plywood. It was just a horrible, horrible thing. But what are you going to do? That's what we do as lawyers. A life of a trial lawyer, right? I guess. Um, yeah, and, and the judge hated me after that. I remember I was giving a great final argument in that case. And right in the middle of it, he called a 15-minute recess and the marshals take the jury out while I'm still arguing. And I'm arguing as they're going out, and I'll never forget, he was then appointed to the Seventh Circuit, and the ABA called me up and asked me to, you know, about the trial and all of that and what I thought of him, and they said it can be anonymous. I said, I don't want this to be anonymous. I want my name down there to say this is the worst federal judge I've ever appeared before, and he should never be appointed to the appellate court. Of course, he was and then became the chief judge and all of that. So, Yeah, that was probably the nicest thing you could say about him from a criminal defense lawyer. If you're criticizing him, they take that as a positive. Yeah, he yeah. probably does. So so what about Alvarez? So does he get to continue being a police officer after that or does he do something else? What happens to him? No, he, he was a very smart guy. He left, went into business, started with a security business, then became investor. In fact, he lives uh, about two blocks from me. So, you know, I would I see him all the time. As I said, his two sons took my course at, at the law school. They're now lawyers. And uh, so I like to say I took a, a cop who was probably making $25,000 a year and made him a very successful businessman. <laughs> and, and, you know, the question that we always get as criminal defense lawyers is, you know, how do you represent those people? Um, we get that at every cocktail uh, party, every dinner. Um, and, and today, with what's going on with Floyd and everything else, you, you must be asked, like, how did you represent those police officers at the time, Alvarez, Lozano, and so on? I mean, I guess my question is, how, how do you answer that? And just the general question of how do you, how do you represent those people in general? 
Well, the, the police were somewhat different. I must have represented somewhere around 100 cops uh, during this period of time. And as I said, we went on with Lozano had a couple of trials and all that kind of thing. And I would tell them, look, this is an important thing for society that these guys get a defense because who would want to be a cop if not only do you have to risk your life, but you have to risk going to prison as well. So it was really, I thought, an important function that people get a real defense uh, as a police officer. No matter what happens, they are entitled to a defense. Uh, I, I really uh, can't say more than that. And the same thing with citizens. You're entitled to a defense. Up until the 16th century in England, it was illegal for a lawyer to assist somebody charged in a criminal case. You could defend them in a civil case or sue for them, but you could not give them advice. Can you imagine? And, and back in those days, every crime, almost every crime ended up by uh, the penalty was hanging. And so you had these people had to go in and defend themselves. Think of how many innocent people were hung then. And what, think about the Innocence Project today with the DNA revolution how, how many innocent people have we proven went to prison? There were over 30 on death row alone. So to say that people shouldn't get a defense and shouldn't be able to put on evidence, shouldn't be able to put on a case to testify on their own behalf, to get a chance to have the jury rule in their favor, I think uh, people are very short-sighted when they criticize lawyers. But I get that a lot. I could, you know, I've had a lot of ugly cases and people say, that's an ugly person. How could you even talk to them, let alone represent them? And I said, look, the person's a citizen of the United States, and I'm enforcing the Sixth Amendment right to have counsel. And not only that, I believe in it. I believe in it as a moral and an ethical and a legal duty. So let's focus for a second on, on after Alvarez. I mean, how important was that case to your overall career and moving forward? At the time you were young, this must have been the biggest case you had ever handled at the time. Um, and it put you onto the national scene. How, how important was it? Well, it was sort of a progression. I, I handled these police cases. And then from the police cases, I represented William Kennedy Smith, which, of course, was the first uh, televised, national, nationally televised criminal case. And, of course, you cannot overemphasize the power of television. And, and so that's really what though it made my career is the fact that I was able to be on television and have cases on television and do commentary on television, not as, as brilliant as the commentary in your blog and now your podcast, but I did the best I could. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And, and just looking back at all these huge and great cases, both on TV and not on TV, what was, what was the biggest and I should say, what was the most important case that you've handled in your mind? You know, I get I, I get asked that a lot, and, and I'll be totally frank with you about this. I rarely think about the cases that I want, and I rarely think about the consequences. I'm one of those persons, I obsess over the mistakes I made, and I obsess over the choices I made and the cases that I lost, and I replay them all the time. I've rewritten final arguments that I've given where they didn't work, and particularly cross-examination. I've recrossed witnesses in my mind hundreds of times because I don't think that I did the right thing. I once had a case where I cross-examined an IRS case agent for five and a half days. It was five and a half days because I never got anywhere. 
So I've gone back and rethought all the things that I could have done better. So I'm just one of those obsessive people that uh, the victories don't mean as much as what I should have done to win the cases that I didn't. Roy, thank you. This has been great. Really, really fascinating. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk about Alvarez and your career and, and everything else. You're one of the greats. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure because obviously I've read your blog for many years and it's really fun to read that. Now that you're moving into podcasts, I'm sure this will be even a greater success. So I, I wish you good luck with this. And I think lawyers are going to have to listen and the general public. Boom. So Roy got the big not guilty verdict in this huge high publicity case and he doesn't even get to enjoy it. He's got to run off to another trial uh, out of town in the cold. But that's the life of a trial lawyer from one to the next without even getting to savor the wins. The losses really stick with us forever. We lose sleep about them. We can't move past them. And the wins, we don't savor enough. And you heard that from Roy. But it did uh, catapult his career into the next level. He became a rock star defense lawyer representing folks like William Kennedy Smith, Justin Bieber, Marv Albert. And of course, when you get a high profile win like this, uh, it, it's amazing for your career because a criminal defense lawyer doesn't have repeat business. It's not like you get to represent the same person over and over again. There are no repeat customers. So when you get a huge win like this, it leads to other big high profile cases and that's exactly what happened to Roy. In the next episode, you're going to hear about the highest publicity case uh, that there could be, the representation of Michael Jackson. And we'll be speaking to his lawyer, Tom Mesro, who's another real trial lawyer, a person who not only tries high profile cases like Michael Jackson, but every year takes on a pro bono case a death penalty pro bono case in Alabama. That's what real trial lawyers do. That's what people like Roy Black and Tom Mesro do. And we'll speak to Tom next week on For the Defense.